Welcome to Word of Mouth, where dentists talk about how oral health is related to overall health, which is also known as the oral systemic connection. The information provided on this video is not intended as medical advice and should not be interpreted as such. If you seek medical advice, please consult with a healthcare professional. Also, the information in this video represents the thoughts of the individual speakers, and the views expressed in this interview do not necessarily reflect the views of the IAOMT. Hi, welcome to this episode of Word of Mouth. My name is Dr. Abramsic. I'm a general dentist in Dallas, Texas. I am also an IAOMT member. I would like to introduce you to Dr. Kevin Boyd. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm, uh, thanks Robin, I'm a, a pediatric dentist in Chicago. Uh, and I'm pursuing postdoc work in anthropology as it applies to my practice of pediatric dentistry. Uh, I don't do a lot of restorative dentistry anymore. Uh, there isn't a whole lot of tooth decay in my practice. I'm, I'm very strict about uh, with parent, helping parents help their kids eat healthier. Um, and I spend most of my time helping children sleep and breathe better. That's the majority of uh, my patient base now. Okay, so today you talked about assessing the pediatric patient for sleep apnea. Share with us a little bit about that. Well, it's not sleep apnea per se. I, I mean, sleep apnea is the end stage mm. of sleep-related breathing disorders, we say. Uh, but, but just assessing comorbidity uh, traits that, that uh, the shape of the jaw and the airway and the face can be often coincident with symptoms that are associated with sleep-related breathing disorders. Uh, and, and apnea, again, is the worst case scenario. We, we like to assess risk earlier before it turns into that. Or as Jeff Rouse would say, we like to front load our resolution um, before it gets too late. Very interesting. So what would one of those patients look like? Well, typically, Again, a lot of children at this stage, because I've been doing this for almost 10 years, I, my, my career changed abruptly uh, about 10 or 11 years ago when I was sort of recruited in an experiment to by physicians to get dentists to pay more attention to sleep-related breathing mm -hmm. problems because pediatricians uh, weren't getting the right training in their, train, in their uh, residencies in medical school. Uh, so it really, uh, now that's pretty much all I do. Uh, so a lot of kids now, having been doing this for so long, are being referred to me for the sole purpose of they've already had their risk assessment done mm -hmm. elsewhere and I, you know, they come to me to try to get verified mm -hmm. and to do uh, what I can, non-surgically, non-medically, non-pharmacologically, mm -hmm. to get these kids to sleep and breathe better. Uh, a typical patient that has identifiable risks or, or you know, uh, morbid, comorbid traits, uh, it could be an anterior open bite, it could be a long face, adenoid mm -hmm. facies we call it, right. dark circles under the eyes, mm -hmm. crooked teeth, uh, baby teeth that, that don't have any space between them, uh, a high narrow palatal vault, a lip tie or a tongue tie, uh, so those are physical factors and then the behavioral factors are inattention, uh, bedwetting, a uh, lot of movement in sleep, a lot of arousals during sleep, nightmares, night terrors. Uh, mm -hmm. Those are just some of the basics. So, and those are things that even before I understood uh, the relationship between the, the craniofacial uh, morphology and, and behavioral traits that are associated with sleep and breathing problems, 
Um, I was seeing these things all my career and just did not, and, and I'd fix a crossbite, say, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and the parent would say, do you know Billy stopped wetting his bed after he fixed his crossbite? Wow. And I would say, sure, if you say so, you know, I mean, I didn't really do it, but I was thinking that, mm-hmm. like, and there really is a relationship, uh, and it's now just starting to become uh, integrated into um, the, the curriculum in orthodontics and pediatric dentistry, slowly but surely. Interesting. So when is the appropriate time to intervene and treat these patients? Well, the Academy of Pediatric Dentistry has a, a very well-defined policy statement that is patterned after what the Academy of Pediatric Medicine has, and that uh, a dental home, like a medical home, should be established by age one. So even though they don't have many teeth, they have a mouth. And we want to see these kids honored before the age of one for their first visit, not just to assess risk for cavities and, and gum disease and, and other problems that can show up. Uh, we want to assess their risk uh, for possibly you know, um, developing airway problems when they get older based upon certain metrics that we can assess uh, now. So it, it's uh, oral health encompasses a lot of things behind, besides cavities and gum disease and trauma. I mean, those are all important to assess. But uh, the, the shape of the jaws and, and its impact on airway development and neurological development is really becoming part of the pediatric dentist's uh, responsibility. Interesting. So uh, most orthodontists today, they treat a child perhaps in their teens. Have we failed as a dental profession? Well. You know, maybe we just need to remember where the dental profession was um, from 1880 to 1940, and that's when uh, you know physicians and orthodontists there weren't orthodontists really as a specialty till late 1800s. But before that, um, a lot of dentists were were practicing the art of orthodontia, and even some physicians were were practicing it. In fact, the the University of Virginia in the 20s. Uh, used to require medical students to take a course in orthodontia Mm. because its relationship to actually mitigating problems associated with inability to breathe through the nose and mouth mouth breathing. Um, So I I would say it was being established and then World War II happened and we don't know really what happened and it's now gradually coming back. I've got literature, uh, stacks of papers from the Boston Journal of Medicine and Surgery before it was the New England Journal of Medicine from the late 19th century and um, before the Journal of the American Dental Association, it was called the Dental Cosmos from 1860. And it talks about expansion for the purpose of improving nasorespiratory function. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lost, I guess a lost art, but we're rediscovering it. Uh, so not to indict the orthodontist, uh, right. they just weren't taught this. Uh, so that's So what is the time. ideal age? If you could get to that child, what is the ideal age for you? Well, again, age one, I'm assessing risk. You can see a high narrow palate, mm-hmm. palate even though there aren't many teeth at age mm-hmm. one, or a, a lip tie or a tongue tie. Um, mouth breathing, uh, snoring, those are things that can show up. So, you know, for me as a pedodont, stage one, um, in terms of when I would treat, actually do something like expand the arch or what our uh, pre-World War II colleagues would call spreading the arch, um, as long as there's 20 teeth. And now, you know, with what I heard from Dr. Bergeson uh, yesterday morning, there are things you can do before there's 20 teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's different appliances. I mean, he's got his, and there, there's other people have, um, you know, there's Fresh Start, uh, Healthy Start, there's uh, Mile Munchies, there's um, 
Myobrace and, and Great Lakes. So there, there are a lot of products out there that I'm going to start paying a lot more attention to that I don't really use in my practice. Right. So you talk about tongue and lip tie. Is that just a fad or is it a real thing? Well, everything's a fad. Uh, penicillin was a fad. Mm. I mean, it doesn't mean, you know, but uh, before penicillin, they used uh, bacteriophages to, to, to kill bacteria. Um, it is validated. Uh, there's only really one good paper about lip tie and risk for tooth decay, and that's Larry Kotlow's paper uh, on uh, facials of primary upper incisors. And then Gimeno's group at Stanford have published two really excellent studies on how tongue tie or short lingual frenum can predispose somebody to maxillary hypoplasia, which could mean in the transverse dimension and or the sagittal dimension and also uh, putting a child at risk for sleep apnea. Two really great papers uh, that I give to every parent that comes in that might have uh, a lip tie or a tongue tie that, that might need revision. I don't diagnose uh, tongue tie and lip tie. I assess risk. Mm. The diagnosing is up to the surgeon who actually does the treatment. Right. So that's okay. my Very feeling. So what pressures have happened over modern civilization that would possibly cause a rise in tongue tie? I have no idea. I really don't. I don't know if there is. It's just like, is there more autism now or are we just getting more sensitive mm -hmm. and changing the diagnostic criteria? But I don't really know. I, I do know that I've treated children who were raised in, in the villages, they call in Africa, breastfed for three years, and they have wicked tongue ties and their teeth are perfect. So mm -hmm. I think it's a modern feeding environment that is causing tongue tie to be a a pathological phenotype, that the, the expression, mm -hmm. but the actual <clears throat> genetic sequence that might lead to a tongue tie isn't necessarily a disease genotype. The, it, it expresses its mm -hmm. disease on, in a modern feeding environment. That's one hypothesis, but I don't really, I don't know. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, learning something new every day, I could be wrong, you know. Okay, talk a little bit about epigenetics. What role does that play? Well, um, Richard Feynman, uh, the, the physicist who, who worked on the atomic bomb, um, he said anybody who thinks, or anyone who says that they understand quantum theory, you know they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, that was, you know, in the 40s, 50s he said that. Well, I say, you know, people who say they really understand epigenetics, I'm, I'm suspicious that, that maybe they know enough to be dangerous like me. Um, you know, epigenetics means above the genome. Right. And it has to do with genes uh, on the same chromosome interacting with each other, in turn acting with genes on other chromosomes, in turn in concert acting with the environment, either the mother's internal environment while pregnant, or later on when the uh, environment of being alive in the world can impact gene expression. Mm -hmm. And that's really <clears throat> what it means. There's, there's three or four mod modalities. There's uh, uh, different microRNA and, and uh, other things that are modulating it that we're just beginning to scratch the surface of how it works. Okay, if you were to compare the therapies that you offer, your treatments, compared to surgical treatment of a patient with mandibular hypoplasia, what would you, how could you compare those and then do you get the same results? Well, um, I showed in my talk some similarities between surgical advancement 
of not just the mandible. When you see a retronathic mandible, you should be suspicious that there's also some degree of maxillary retronathia. And that's sort of the best kept secret in orthodontics mm -hmm. now. Um, so I always sort of want to really see what's going on in the maxilla that could have influenced the way that mandible was growing from in utero, actually. Um, and the, the procedure that we are most comfortable with, and, and actually uh, there's evidence that this sort of thing was being done way before World War II, is at a very young age, <coughs> we expand uh, the maxilla for, for sure, and then we help the mandible come forward. <coughs> and often that will give the same results or a similar effect as a surgical maxillomandibular advancement, a Lafort and cord economies will do to uh, actually bringing both jaws forward and in a counterclockwise uh, rotation manner, which is really the MMA procedure that we, uh, the surgeons we work mm -hmm. with, they promote counterclockwise rotation, mm -hmm. not just widening the arch and forwarding it, but, but that rotation is very important. Absolutely. Uh, and that's kind of what we're doing uh, in little kids as young as two and a half, and uh, see the same effect. And if you were to summarize the overall goal of your treatment, what would that be? Optimize tongue space at the earliest possible age for the greatest number of children. In a nutshell, that's what it is. We must assess risk and we must do all we can, anything that is feasible. And feasibility, I mean, it may be most feasible for me to do this in a 10-year-old. How come? Because that's when I met him, right? Okay. So that's the earliest age it's feasible for me. But as a pediatric dentist, I'm seeing kids, you know, one, two, three years old. Well, then that becomes maybe feasible if the parents have resources. That's a big problem. Right now, the kids who get the treatment that we need are kids whose parents have resources, you know, to afford it. And, you know, it's just, just like penicillin. You know, until it becomes available to the masses, this can't be considered a breakthrough. Uh, and that's, you know, why I'm so encouraged by things like, you know, Healthy Start and Myobrace and Myomunchie, mm -hmm. uh, that you can start before there's even that many teeth. Absolutely. Uh, healthy, you know, um, nursing and weaning is a big component, promoting eating, you know, firm, crunchy foods, uh, assuring that a child doesn't have pet dander in their bedroom and they have, you know, carpet, get wood floors, a humidifier, air filters. Um, there's lots you can do before there are the teeth, um, but it's again, this is something that is not really well accepted by the mass of healthcare providers, but it, we're making progress. That's wonderful. Yeah. So what about compliance in a two or three year old? Do you have any issues with that and what techniques do you have to work around that? Well, I'm a pedodontist. And, you know, I've been told all my career, well, you know, you, you need to know, you have to know what the orthodontists know. Well, you know what? I trained at Iowa in the 80s. I, I was trained in orthodontics and growth and development by Sam Bashara, Andreessen. Uh, we, we, you know, those are big names in orthodontics. And I was really, uh, Jim McNamara at Michigan taught me a lot uh, about early intervention. Um, but one thing that we never say as pedodontists is you orthodontists need to understand how to manage anxiety in kids. Uh, oh no, we don't see them till 10. Well, that's why. If they had to demonstrate the same amount of competence that pedodontists have to demonstrate before they can get a certificate, there would be more children not being told to wait till age seven if they were more comfortable. So I can't sit here and rattle off, this is what I do. But I tell you, I do my best 
to try to recruit the parents because if the child perceives that the parents want them to do this and this is a good thing for them, these kids have such a desire to please their role models. So I really work a lot on the parents and they, you know, they may be coming with biases. Like, I didn't get braces until I was 13. You, you know, you want to expand my three-year-old? And, you know, yeah, I'd, I'd be skeptical too. Let me take some time with you and talk to you about this. And it's usually moms that are bringing kids for the first and it's like, you know, I want to talk to dad too. Well, he works. Well, so my wife's husband works too. Yeah, right. and, and that usually gets a laugh. Uh, but I'll meet, I'll meet Dad after work. I, I want an opportunity to talk to both of you. Mm. And that's, that helps. It really does uh, when, when they great. see I'm willing to talk. And I don't Absolutely. charge you know, for extra consultations or anything. If I get both parents on board early, I can get that kid aboard. That's great. Okay, why do we have wisdom teeth? Interesting question was asked yesterday. Um, I guess there's a theory out there that they are, um, what did he say, teratomas? Um, never heard that one, you know, a growth. And, you know, um, why do we have impacted wisdom teeth or why do we have wisdom teeth? Or what? Well, is there a purpose for them? Well, there was at one time, back in our early pre-modern human, like maybe a million years ago. I mean, the genus Homo goes back two, two and a half million years, right? Well, we needed wisdom teeth for a long time just to chew. You know, our master mm -hmm. muscles were huge and mm -hmm. uh, we needed to break down. Um, you know, we were scavengers too. We weren't hunters right away. We would go and wait till after the lions were done and then we'd eat the bone marrow. And mm -hmm. uh, so we needed those big teeth for chewing, but that disappeared and we stopped needing them for chewing. We could survive. We can see evidence of agenesis of third molars five, you know, 300,000 years ago. So we really haven't needed them for nutritional purposes. Okay. We need room for them. Mm -hmm. We need room for them because if there's room for the wisdom teeth, there's room for the tongue. And Absolutely. tongue space is all about breathing. Absolutely. So that's, you know, again, that is uh, something we developed uh, in our anthropology mm -hmm. research. Okay. I mean, we didn't read that anywhere. We kind of mm -hmm. made that up. Uh, I work with Mariana Evans and mm -hmm. Janet Monge at the University of Pennsylvania's museum. And we're getting all kinds of ideas about how come how come wisdom teeth weren't impacted till like 300 years ago? Mm -hmm. You know, Very not that there weren't any, right. but not appreciable. Okay, so tonsil and adenoid removal. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. Is it necessary? When do you feel it's necessary, or do you feel sometimes it happens whenever there could be treatment that you're doing that could avoid that? Mm -hmm. um, I'm a dentist. So I don't diagnose adenotonsillar hypertrophy. I know to, how to assess risk. I know how to do gradation of tonsils. I know how to read the adenoid uh, swelling on a lateral x-ray, whether it's two-dimensional or three-dimensional. But I know that if it's beyond certain criteria, if I have grade three or four tonsils, adenoids are touching the soft palate on the x-ray, I want an ENT consult. I don't do it directly. I, I involve the primary care pediatrician. Let's work together on this. I, I'm really thinking, based on what I'm seeing, uh, that maybe we should get an ENT on board. Is there somebody you like working with? Uh, I'd like to work together on this. Too many dentists are making direct referrals. They shouldn't do that. You talk to the primary care physician first, and, and you engage them, and you work together. That's the only way they're going to know that you're doing more than filling cavities. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and I, so I don't make that decision. I just assess the risk, like I do for tongue tie. 
I assess risk and mm -hmm. I refer it to the people who are going to treat it if it's indicated. Okay, so as far as symptoms after TNA surgery, mm -hmm. do you see a return of those? Is yeah, recurrent recurrent symptoms, recurrent apnea post-TNA, they call it. And it's in the literature reported anywhere from 40 to 60% of kids will have some recurrence. Mm -hmm. They almost always have immediate relief. And that's a good thing. But what I'm suggesting is if we can pull, I mean, the back wall of, you know, the adenoids are on the back of the throat, posterior pharynx. The soft palate, hard palate, when it's this close, well, they cut away the adenoids. Why not do that too? You know, that, 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 they need it. I, I mean, it's correcting malocclusion, but it has that, and McNamara showed that in a, in a paper, that when you expand and protract, you pull the soft palate down and forward. And what's attached to the uh, posterior nasal spine of the hard palate? The soft palate. That's the anterior wall, the nasal, nasal oropharynx. So um, it does no harm, for sure. Great, okay, and so the term TOTS, who coined that term? Um, I uh, thought that the International Association of Tongue Tie Professionals, uh, they had, they invited me as a keynote, uh, was that five years ago, four mm -hmm. or five years Montreal. ago, in Montreal. And as I'm making the slides, I think these people have an identity crisis. They're talking about tongue tie, but they do lip ties and buckle ties and upper lower lip. So I said, why not? And it was my idea uh, for public consumption. I like my, my mentor, my, my idol is Benjamin Franklin. How many things did he invent? Guess how many patents or trademarks he had? Zero. It's for public consumption. So that's, you know, I thought this is great. I put it up there. I didn't put trademark. And then, you know, other people came along and tried to trademark it. And it's like they, they didn't get very far with it. But I would say, um, you know, there's one very well-known pediatric dentist who does beautiful work and is very generous. He, he invited me to his office to learn about how he did tongue tie and lip tie. Um, and he helped get it popularity. I don't think it would have gone anywhere without him. Um, so I, I, I feel indebted to Larry Kotlow for, for helping elevate uh, the term tot. So, and it's, it's stick, I see it everywhere now. So, but I, I, I wasn't interested in trademarking it or anything. Just uh, thought it was a good thing and uh, it looks I like, like it. it's taken. Do you yeah. want to say what it's said? Yeah, tethered oral tissue. Uh, you know, tongue tie, TT, well that's mm -hmm. just the tongue. And you, you have them on your lips and you, you know, buckle tie. Right. And I actually came up with it with tethered spinal cord. I started looking for other things along the midline that might be tethered. And it seemed, and although there's no, you know, genetic relationship to that, as far as I know, I just thought, boy, that is a great way to describe tethered oral tissues, tots. And they happen to be in little kids. I mean, they, they persist throughout adulthood, but they're first recognizable when they're tots. <laughs> so, yeah. Interesting. Okay, so you, you use the appliance for your patients. Are there mm -hmm. any other things that could be integrated into the treatment that would increase the chance of expansion? Well, every, yeah, every kid in my practice, um, we have a myofunctional uh, therapist, she's a speech pathologist, uh, Jody Walker, uh, who's upstairs, and we have an old brownstone in Lincoln Park, and upstairs there's a beautiful old apartment with pocket doors, and she goes up there and she screens all the kids and does exercises, and 
Uh, so myofascial therapy has just got to be integrated into the mm -hmm. discussion if you're, and I really any age probably, but you know, me working with two, three, and four year olds. And um, myofascial therapy is, I, I think, Gonna, there's going to be a demand for them to develop more myofunctional therapists that are comfortable with toddlers. Um, but I, that's, that's vital uh, to what I do. Um, healthy eating, of course. I mean, I, I was educated as a, uh, I have a master's degree in nutrition and dietetics. And one thing that wasn't taught to me in my nutrition dietetics program was the actual physical acquisition of food, uh, whether it's uh, milk uh, of an infant through, through the breast, the work that that our ancestors had to do to process food before they had mechanical processing. We had to process it ourselves. And what happens, we were eating all, when we were hunter-gatherers up until about three or 400 years ago, uh, or, or farmers, um, we ate all the time. And you're, that's the only time your tongue should be in the floor of your mouth is when you're eating. Well, we used to eat all the time. We don't eat as much anymore, and our tongue should most of the time be up in the roof of the mouth when your nose Absolutely. breathing and when you're at rest and when you're forming consonants. Uh, all Those are all times when the tongue should be up in the roof of the mouth. Uh, so anything you can do uh, to promote a kid to getting that ability as early in life as possible, I feel is very worthwhile. Absolutely. So even before the age of one, when the recommendation is that a child is evaluated, what about at birth? What do you think about assessing well, the child Well, in, if you're in Brazil, they have a mandatory freedom inspection law. So, you know, tongue ties and lip ties are dealt with in the delivery room. So, you know, I'm, I'm like, if a mom, parents want to bring their newborn to me that's only three days old, I'm thrilled to be able to look in there and chart what I see. And uh, so, but usually, you know, by age one, if I see a kid by one, one and a half, I'm happy because most people, and you know, pediatricians are supposed to be, that's part, you know, do, does your child snore? If so, um, how frequently and how loudly has your kid, you know, been to the dentist or do you know you're supposed to go by age one? Those are all things we partner with, with pediatricians and, right. and I've, you know, worked with the same pediatricians for a long time in Chicago. So I, I consider uh, the pediatricians that I most closely work with as being having a high dental IQ is what we call That's it. That's wonderful. Yeah, we spend a lot of time with each other. So. Yeah. Okay, so the the newborn, and mm -hmm. if there is an assessment, and they're told there's not a tongue tie, but mom is having a hard time breastfeeding their baby, mm -hmm. what would be your recommendation to the mom? Well, first of all, what are the difficulties? I mean, is there nipple pain? Is the baby not latching? Let's uh, say they're clicking. Clicking. Then. For me, a lactation consultant mm -hmm. uh, is the first person. They're the pros. Um, and you know who told them that there, there wasn't a problem? I mean, was it a lactation consultant? Because if a lactation consultant, you know, maybe get a second opinion. That's all. Mm -hmm. But I, that's, I'm, I'm not the person for that. I, I defer uh, to them. And then if there's uh, an indication for a tongue tie, I would absolutely want a myofunctional therapist involved along with the lactation consultant, along with the pediatrician, uh, and take it from there. You know, I'm, I'm maybe quarterback of the case, but those right. are things that I'm not going to be doing directly. Okay, so you talked about TOTS, you talked about an upper labial frenum, 
the lingual frenulum, and then the buccal frenula. Mm -hmm. What role does the buccal frenula play in a tot? Yeah, you're asking the wrong person okay. on that. But really, I, and it's it's good to admit ignorance. Sometimes Absolutely. when we're asked as professionals, like, oh my God, she thinks you know, and she's depending on me, and it's like. I am I am just not at all um, that's not in my the, the buckle it's already controversial enough with the lip ties with the lack of really good published evidence on it so I, I don't even go there with buckle ties mm -hmm. because most people don't even know how to say buckle you know so I, I'm just uh, I, I would not mm -hmm. weigh in on that uh, okay all right and uh, so some patients that you see are in their teens. How effective is treatment in teens compared to a two and a half year old? Well, I don't, I don't really treat teenagers anymore. Um, my partner is a general dentist who's been with me almost 20 years. And she actually is the expert, uh, Janet Panarella. Um, she pretty much gets all teenagers. She's doing Invisalign on most of them now. Um, and I'm setting them up. And, and there's some kids, I never promise this, but you know, it's maybe around 15, 20% of kids that they have a really great response to you know, early treatment um, and myofunctional therapy. And is that, boy, sometimes you can just use a spring aligner uh, or a tooth positioner and you don't, you don't really need to do full orthodontics on them. Again, I never promise that. But some kids, uh, depending on their treatment response, um, their, their treatment isn't as complex as it would be had we done nothing, hypothetically. Uh, so, but I, I've gotten out of the teen business, and that's, that's great. I mean, I got out of restorative dentistry. That was my first bonanza. Mm. And then with my partner's uh, talent at, at dealing with teens and adults, I can focus on the seven and under crowd. So Invisalign, I think of straightening and derotating teeth. It is. But you're, you're more along the lines of orthotropics or postural orthodontics. Yeah, but we're talking about kids who have already had that. So what my partner is doing is straightening teeth upon jaws that have been built to be mm. conducive to habitual nose breathing for a lifetime. And she can just finish aligning those teeth on those beautifully formed arches in, under the best of circumstances. But no, I don't think Invisalign is good for, you know, a non-growing person who, who still has retronathic and deficient, you know, tongue space. Uh, but, you know, on the right kind, in, Invisalign teen is, we're even doing some uh, mixed dentition cases in Invisalign now. Okay. But we're doing the orthotropics before that. We're making sure that tongue space is, you know, not going to be interfered with. And, and enhanced. You can actually enhance tongue space with Invisalign now, mm -hmm. under you know under the way we treatment plan it, right. and design it, the ClinCheck. Okay, so postural orthodontics. Talk up, talk about postural ortho and tongue posture and body posture. Well, again, if a if a child early in life is has morphology that's you know craniofacial respiratory complex morphology this conducive to habitual nose breathing, they are going to go into a very good body cervical spine posture. We see it all the time on our x-rays um, in before and after treatment is that you assure optimal tongue space and, and airway breathing function and you're, 
the, the posture just tends to follow it, but that's when we get in early. In terms of a kid who comes in that, you know, maybe 10, 12, and has just had a lifetime of mouth breathing and bad posture, you know, I'll engage uh, a craniosacral osteopath, uh, osteopathic physician, mm -hmm. uh, physical therapist. Um, we've got um, Dr. Feely is a DO in Chicago, Jennifer Hobson is a physical therapist. Uh, in, in Chicago. So I have people that can deal with kids who have just gotten too far. Um, but, you know, that's again, it's so hard to reverse those effects once a kid is, doesn't have a lot of growth to modify. So I, yeah. that's the best I can do. So if um, someone watching this has a child they suspect to have these issues, a malocclusion or a bad bite, how can they find an orthodontist who treats the way that you do? You know, that's a that's a good question. I, I'm meeting more people. I, I mean, I'm I'm doing some adjunct work at Boston University's dental school with the, the orthodontic residents, and I met two ortho, three orthodontists yesterday. That they're all and they all came to the lecture today to hear me talk, and they have been doing this sort of thing uh, for years, but. A little bit. They're doing everything else. Well, to me, that's all I do. Um, so there's more people out there than there used to be, but it's still a minority. Um, what would you do? Um, I think I'm happy to give my email address. Not that you're going to come to Chicago, but help you find somebody. I think is just the best way, and it's just like I would probably call their pediatric dentist. I mean, I would myself, if they contacted me after I had some information, in a SESC uh, or an orthodontist maybe uh, that I might know that advertises themselves as somebody that treats in early in the primary dentition, and really find out where they're at and try to work with them just, you know, by mm -hmm. Skype or something. I, and until we get more people trained. Right. And until orthodontic yeah. programs and pediatric dentistry programs actually incorporate this into the CODA curriculum, it's going to be hard to find people. It just will. Uh, and, okay. and I will do anything I can to help people. Okay. Uh, Very good. And then lastly, if, if we have dentists that are watching and they're interested in training on how to treat these patients, where can they go to learn this? Well, um, I got most of my training um, from uh, Bill Hang who has the uh, Orthotropics mini residency in California. You have to go there for a year, but it's worth every penny that I paid for it. Um, John Mew, um, who invented Orthotropics, I flew to England three different times and learned from him. Um, I would say uh, a course, um, Myofunctional Therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, there's two organizations that do that. The uh, uh, AAMS and uh, the IOMT, uh, same acronym, but they're myofunctional. That's isn't that the group? No, that was the tongue-tied professionals that we were in Montreal with. Um, is those are good places mm -hmm. to start? Um, I am teaching uh, the Academy of Craniofacial Pain and Great Lakes Orthodontics separately are sponsoring a three-tiered course that I'm going to be teaching with a myofunctional therapist. Um, uh, that's Jody Walker, who works with me. Milt Gavilis, who is a periodontist, who does all of our, uh, most of our tongue tie releases and lip tie releases. 
And Darius Logmani, uh, who trained with Stephen Sheldon at Lurie Children's Hospital, who's now um, head of pediatric sleep medicine, a Lutheran General Advocate, Lutheran General in Chicago. So he and I, and uh, Dr. Gavilis and, and Jody are all gonna be teaching this three-tiered course starting in January in Chicago, which um, Academy of Clean and Facial Pain is who you would contact when we do that first level course. Um, okay. And there are other, I don't wanna promote myself, there's other people um, that are teaching, Barry Raphael, and Mark Cruz teach yeah. an airway mini residency that is really good. They're in uh, New Jersey. Uh, California and New Jersey, yeah. they do both. Mm -hmm. Jim Bronson, the ELF mm -hmm. Education Institute, yeah. I've learned a lot uh, mm -hmm. doing that. Um, and there's more things, uh, I don't want to come across as promoting anything more than right. the other. Uh, there's, and as I know more, I'll tell people other places. Mm -hmm. But the Bill Hang mini residency is what really changed my life, uh, my career. And That's that was, wonderful. I don't know, seven or eight years ago, mm -hmm. so. Thank you, Dr. Boyd, for sharing with us today. And thank you for joining this episode of Word of Mouth. You can get more information from wordofmouth.iaomt.org. This podcast has been brought to you by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, the IAOMT. The IAOMT strives for safer dentistry and a healthier world. We are a network of over 1,000 dentists, health professionals, and scientists who research dental products and practices, including the risks of mercury fillings, fluoride, root canals, and jawbone osteonecrosis. We are a nonprofit organization and have been dedicated to our mission of protecting public health and the environment since we were founded in 1984. You can learn more about us at www.iaomt.org and www.thesmartchoice.org. Com. The information provided on this video is not intended as medical advice and should not be interpreted as such. If you seek medical advice, please consult with a healthcare professional. Also, the information in this video represents the thoughts of the individual speakers and the views expressed in this interview do not necessarily reflect the views of the IAOMT, 